This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. I'm honored to have as my guest in the studio today, Stephanie Mulder, who is uh, with the Department of Art and Art History here at the University of Texas. And the Department of Middle Eastern Studies. And the Department of Middle Eastern Studies, where she teaches uh, courses on Islamic art and Islamic history. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. And I should also point out that you have recently published a book called The Shrines of the Alids in Medieval Syria, Sunnis, Shias, and the Architecture of Coexistence, which this episode ties into to a series that we're doing on the origins of sectarianism and Islam. And the word coexistence doesn't tend to pop up a lot when you talk about Sunni and Shia these days. So can you briefly tell us what the book is about? And then we'll get into some more specific questions. Sure. The book is really trying to, in some ways, I guess, make a type of intervention into this narrative of conflict, which is the usual narrative we hear when we talk about the sectarian relationships um, within Islam. So... What I attempted to do is because there is a problem of kind of sources in the medieval period, um, there are not so many sources that really tell the history of Shiism with the kind of depth that we would like, partly because Shi sources were destroyed, you know, for several reasons this is the case. So um, what I thought would be useful would be to tell the history of Shiism using architecture, because in fact there are a very large number of buildings that remain in what are today considered to be Sunni territories, but in fact which are extremely important for the Shia um, but as I argue in the book, um, they're always also very important for the Sunnis. And trying to tell the story of these buildings actually enables us to see that despite a lot of rhetoric of conflict um, that is part of our source material, in fact, um, there was also a kind of pragmatic tolerance that was really the norm in people's everyday lives. So since you've mentioned this gap in the available literature, um, you're using architecture as a primary document. And as I mentioned before the interview, I, I have several teacher friends who have told me that the first time I get an art historian into the studio, I have to ask how one uses architecture as a primary document. So what are you looking for when you look at a building? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. So there are a couple of ways you can approach a building when you're trying to do um, architectural analysis or the kind of analysis that art historians use. We often call it formal analysis. Um, so the one approach that you could use is one that really just looks at the building um, in terms of its siting within the city, its location, and the kinds of visual effects that were meant to be produced. So in other words, a kind of aesthetic and visual look at the building. So you would ask yourself questions like, where is it located? What other kinds of buildings is it in communication with? Um, how does it interact with other spaces that surround it? Is it an open space? Is it a closed space? And what kind of visual effect does that produce for the person who experiences the building? Um, you can also ask yourself questions about the way that you move through a building. So do you move through a building in a very orchestrated sort of way, or is it a kind of open, free-flowing space? Think, for example, about the difference between a church and a mosque. Mm -hmm. So a church is a space that really reflects the hierarchical nature of Christianity, which had a pope at the top and a series of people kind of very hierarchically organized underneath them. And it also represents the kind of hierarchical relationship 
relationship between the local pastor or priest who is interacting with the congregation and the people themselves who see him as a kind of guide or intercessor, right? He's the one who leads the liturgy every week. He dispenses the sacrament. He does a whole series of things um, that are essential for their salvation. So a church is actually set up kind of like a stage set in some sense or a theater where you have an elevated area up front where consecrated important people carry out important rituals and everybody else kind of observes and participates occasionally but it's mostly passive. A mosque, by contrast, is a large open space whose primary purpose is to provide a covered, sheltered area for one of the primary ritual duties, which is to assemble as a community in prayer and to be able to face one direction, the direction of Mecca. So it doesn't have a hierarchical organization. It's kind of a vast open space with one wall that's been highlighted so you know which direction to turn in prayer. And because Islam itself is not a very hierarchical structure, that uh, is actually reflected in the architecture itself. So you can draw conclusions, in other words, about culture and history based on the way the building is laid out. I want to ask a question about the title of your book, which is The Shrines of the Alids. And we'll get into the shrines in a second, but I want to ask about the use of the term alid as opposed to shi'i. What's the difference, or, or why, particularly within the time period that you're discussing, did you use that term? I mean, partly it's because, of course, Shiism, it's not something that's really clearly coalescent in the earliest years of Islam, right? But what was very clear was that there were descendants of the Prophet Muhammad who were referred to as the Ahl al-Bayt, or the family of the Prophet, or also referred to as those who descended through the family lineage of Ali, Mm -hmm. as the Alids. So these figures, um, I refer to them as the Alids because what I was interested in was actually the intersectarian relationships, the relationship between Sunni and Shia. So I'm actually not really talking about um, the history of Shiism. I'm talking about the history of both Sunnis and Shis and the way they related to these holy figures who were revered by both sects. They were revered for different reasons, of course, because they're much more prominent in the pious practice of the Shia, but they're also extremely important for Sunnis. Also, the next part of the book is medieval Syria. So what's going on in Syria at this time that these shrines are built? What is the political and historical environment? Well, there's a couple of things that are pretty intense and pretty fascinating that are going on. One is that the Islamic world has been under the rule of a Shi'i dynasty for almost two centuries at this point. So if we kind of begin our story in uh, sort of 11th, 12th century, um, the Fatimids, the Shi'i dynasty of the Fatimids has been ruling Syria, Palestine area um, from Cairo and parts of North Africa and at certain times also the holy cities of Mecca and Medina from, you know, the sort of 10th century. So for about two centuries, this Islamic lands have been, central Islamic lands have been under the rule of a Shi'i dynasty. Now, the Shi'i dynasty, of course, um, was coexistent at the same time as there was the Sunni Abbasid Caliphate ruling from Baghdad, and then some of its later Sunni successors, the Seljuk uh, Sultanate, most prominent among them. And in kind of the 11th and 12th century, there starts to be a movement to overthrow the political sovereignty of the Shi'i dynasty, which we refer to as the Sunni revival, um, which really kind of peaks in the 12th and 13th century. Its its greatest figure is probably well known to a Western audience. It's Saladin. And, uh, and he was the one who finally overthrows the last Fatimid Shi'i ruler in Cairo and installs once again a Sunni caliphate. 
So the story has often been told that, you know, Sunnism really was ascendant at this point, and it was really interested in suppressing Shiism. But what I've found by looking at the architecture is that, in fact, given the fact that there were many Shis in Syria at this time, and given the fact that once Shiism had been overthrown as a political entity, it was no longer seen as quite the threat, um, later uh, Sunni rulers really adopted a kind of pragmatic approach to propitiating and sometimes even supporting their Shi populations. So that's one thing that's going on, the sectarian conflict. Of course, the other thing is the Crusades, which is happening at exactly the same time. And of course, that's an important link also via Saladin. His two great achievements were the overthrow of the Shi dynasty of the Fatimids, but also, of course, the eviction of the Crusaders from the Holy Land and the recapture of Jerusalem. So so getting more into the, the meat of your book, so to speak, what do shrines reveal about these practices, these pragmatic accommodations, as you refer to them? What kinds of shrines are you looking at, and what are you able to tell? Well, I'm looking at a whole host of different types of buildings, which was a challenge. I had to use a whole series of methods, really, to kind of uncloak the reality of these works of architecture. I mean, one of the methods that I use is archaeology, because I'm also an archaeologist. So we excavated one of these shrines over the course of the last decade in northern Syria at a site called Balis. Um, I'm also using the kind of formal analysis that we were talking about earlier. You can also, of course, read a building by reading its actual texts, because Mm -hmm. many buildings, um, especially in the Islamic world, but also in other places, they actually literally speak to us. They tell us what they're about and why they're important and what they're trying to communicate. Uh, And then I also use um, a larger kind of analysis, which kind of pulls back and looks at the entire landscape of shrines that was created in this period. So I looked at several kinds of buildings. There are some which are really kind of masterworks of medieval architecture in northern Syria in the city of Aleppo. Um, And then there are a group of much smaller shrines that until now have been completely ignored by art historians because they're not particularly architecturally prominent. But what I discovered is that you could reveal enormous amount about their significance in this period by kind of getting down to the nitty gritty of their periodization and their construction and their relationships to other buildings um, and also their textual history, what we know about them from the sources. And what are these buildings speaking to you about? What story are they telling? Yes. Well, what the story that they're telling, well, let me just say that the reason I got interested in this topic was because when I was working in Syria, which I did for uh, over a decade, I would work as an archaeologist there, and, and coming and going, I noticed that everybody used these shrines. I had been told, even the tour guides would tell you, these are, you know, these are Shi shrines, right? But I noticed that everybody went there. The local merchants, Sunni merchants from the neighborhood went there for daily prayers. Everybody used them, right? So that made me curious about it. And what I found going back through then looking also at the Arabic textual sources, which is a really important thing to do as well when you're doing architectural history. In a way, you have to kind of use all the tools of a historian and then in addition, use also the tools of an art historian to get this really full picture. Um, And in looking at these buildings, I discovered that actually that was not unusual. And in fact, what was most remarkable was to see that many of the buildings had been patronized by major Sunni rulers. In fact, the majority of their patrons were Sunnis. So to speak about these spaces as being Shi spaces is a very kind of odd thing to do when you realize that actually they were built by Sunni rulers for the most part, and they were patronized or visited, I should say, um, also by Sunnis as well as Shis. So they were really kind of shared spaces. 
So in your book, you do talk a lot about patronage. What, what was the significance of being a patron of, of a building or an institution? Well, I mean, I think it's always the same kind of story in any civilization. The significance is that it, if you're a person who wants to make a name for themselves, to have something live on beyond your time, um, endowing a building is always a kind of a philanthropic gesture that will ensure that your name lives on because, of course, you'll attach your name to it in some way. And all of these patrons did attach their name very prominently, usually over the entrance to the building, so that you know, you know, just in the way that somebody founding a, a building on the UT campus would do the same today. So that's really kind of um, that basic human motivation. Um, but in this case, I think these patrons were kind of in a very canny way. They were using architecture to promote an agenda of this sectarian conflict is not helpful right now, a way to kind of unify the polity using architecture. And the most um, intriguing evidence for that is in the Mashhad al-Hussein, which is a shrine to um, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson al-Hussein, um, located in Aleppo. It's also the most spectacular of the buildings, easily as spectacular as um, some of the very famous medieval madrasas from this period. This building actually has a specific injunction from its patron that lists all of the 12 imams of the Shia, but also lists the four rightly guided caliphs who are revered by the Sunnis and often are disparaged by the Shia. And at the end it said, you are to revere all the companions of God's prophet, really clearly making the point that um, basically, guys, we need to all get along. <laughs> Interesting. So I have to ask, wrapping up, as you mentioned, you've, you've been doing work in Syria for 10 years, and uh, things are not going so well in Syria right now. What, what is the status of the sites you've been working on? As far as I know, these specific sites have not been damaged yet. I haven't heard that they have been damaged, but frankly, it's extremely difficult to get any information about these archaeological sites. You may know that ISIS has been using archaeological sites to fund, I mean, they're looting archaeological sites at a pretty terrifying rate in order to fund um, their campaign. They're also destroying shrines, and uh, we've seen a number of instances of that in Iraq. The destruction of the tomb of Jonah um, in Iraq is the most prominent of those. So it wouldn't surprise me if they were actually, had already been destroyed or were on their way to being destroyed, because of course Aleppo has been, parts of Aleppo have been under control of ISIS um, for some time. So that's the grim reality. The bright side is that there are now a number of initiatives underway that are actually uh, designed to kind of mitigate the destruction and also to start recording the losses so that we can get a better handle on exactly what's going on there. Um, one of them is actually funded by the State Department, and the other one is um, one that I'm involved in working with out of the Smithsonian Museum and the Penn Cultural Heritage Center. Both of these projects have two goals. One is to actually um, start mapping on the ground what has been lost, which is extremely challenging to do under the circumstances, and which relies very heavily on a group group of a very, very brave Syrian archaeologists and art historians and museum workers who are literally Syria's monuments men right now, who are going out and photographing um, monuments under very dangerous conditions because if these groups find them doing this, they could easily be killed. Um, so they're kind of heroically trying to uh, record the damage. And then also there's been an initiative, the first of which was carried out last month in Turkey um, by the Pan Cultural Heritage Center and the Smithsonian Museum to actually bring resources to those people in Syria, some of whom came out of Syria, attended a training uh, uh, course 
in Turkey and then went back in with materials in order to preserve uh, monuments and, uh, and works of art. So these are really brave people who really deserve our recognition right now because it's really the only way that we're getting any information about what's happening to these sites. Right, and we, we continue to be hopeful that uh, something will change in Syria soon. Indeed. I'd really like to thank you for joining me today in the studio. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.